The, the last couple of weeks, as we have come to uh, approaching Christmas, we've looked at it through a couple different lenses. Uh, if you remember, I think it was about three weeks ago, we looked at it through the lens of what was going on in Bethlehem. And we were talking about the chaotic situation in Bethlehem and how because of the chaos, the miracle of Christmas was missed by most. It, it was happening right on the other side of a barn wall. And it was missed by most because of the chaos. Last week, we were looking at it from Mary and Joseph's point of view and talking about the tension that Christmas can create. Because actually, the first Christmas created some problems for Mary and Joseph. If you remember that conversation, there, there was a lot of things that were made harder because of the first Christmas. A, a, a pregnant fiancé was a difficult thing even back then. And, and all of the, the stigma that would have come with this they had the promise that God was with them, but they had to manage this tension of life is still hard, but God is still good. And how Christmas kind of navigates us, helps us to navigate that tension of the difficulty of life, but the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. And what I want to do this morning is look at Christmas through the lens of a theological term here, redemptive history. Redemptive history simply means this what God is doing at any point in time in history. You know, when, when you were in school, you took different history classes. There was American history, there was world history, and they all kind of focused on certain times and certain places. Redemptive history is the story of what God is doing behind the scenes, or sometimes right out in the forefront, through the history of mankind. Most redemptive history focuses on like the biblical timeline. What was God up to? You can read the Bible and you can go, okay, what happened in Israel? What did the kings do? What did Redemptive history is going, what was God doing through all of that? Does that make sense? So looking at redemptive history, we're going to look at what God has been doing throughout the history of mankind. And when looking at history, the best place to start is the beginning. We know Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was seven days of creation, or actually six days, and then the seventh day was rest. On the final day of creation, God has created the, the heavens and the earth and the moon and the stars and the seas and the fish and the animals and all these different things. And every single day, when it was time for him to quit, he looked and he said, do you remember what he said? This is good. Every single day he stopped and he would go, this is good. The Holy Spirit and Jesus and God would sit back and go, man, we're killing it. This is so good. Nothing like this has ever been seen. It was all brand new, but they said it's missing something. So on the final day, they get together and they have this powwow. And in Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So God sitting back and going, something is missing. And he, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus go, we, we figured it out. Let's make mankind. And let's make them like us. Able to think and to reason, and most importantly, able to have relationship. And so God created man. And does anybody know, what did he say after he created mankind? On that final day, what did he say? This is very good. And we hear, we say very good all the time. Very good kind of means nothing to us. 
There's no difference in American English between good and very good. But back then, in the Hebrew, it actually says, this is good, good. They didn't have exclamation points and all of that kind of stuff, so the way that they would emphasize something is repeating it. And so God went, everything else is good. This is good, good. This is excellent. This is the best thing that we have done. And it wasn't the stuff that we marvel at, looking at the stars in the sky at night, and we go, God, are you kidding me? You placed them? This is crazy. He looked at mankind, at Adam and Eve, and he said, this is the best thing that I've created. This is good, good. And, and actually, every single day from then on, God would come down into the garden where Adam and Eve lived, and he would walk with them in the afternoon. And they would walk, and they would talk. What would they talk about? I don't know. They had no problems. So was it just walking and marveling and going, God, tell us how you made that one. Ooh, God, where'd you come up with this one? Like, I don't know. But they had this perfect relationship, walking arm in arm with their creator every single day, like literally walking with him in the garden. We can't even imagine it. But life was as it was meant to be. We were with him and God was with us. Everything was perfect exactly as he planned it to be, as it was meant to be. But we all know it didn't last. I don't care if this is your first time in church, you've heard of the fall. We don't sit well. We don't often just leave well enough alone. God had told them in the garden, everything you could possibly do is good except this one thing. There's this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's in the middle of the garden. Don't eat from that tree. Every, literally everything else you can come up with in your mind to do is great. I heard a comedian talking one time, a Christian comedian, and he was going, how dumb was Adam? Like, you have Eve there, beauty personified. She hasn't figured out clothes yet. Like, build yourself a canoe and head down the river. Just go away from the tree. But they decide to kind of pitch camp right at the base of the tree, essentially, so they walk by it every day, staring at it. And eventually, the tempter comes. In Genesis chapter 3, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, said the serpent to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. I want to pause in the story real quick. We, we see Adam and Eve choosing rebellion, choosing to go against what God has called them to. What's the word that we use for an act of rebellion against God? Disobedience. Disobedience. There's an even shorter one. Sin. We see Adam and Eve choosing sin. God said, go this way. We're going to go that way. And, and, and Satan, the tempter, is coming and he's whispering in their ear the whole time. And he, and he starts to question what God has said. And, he's, and he starts to go, nah, that's not true. Don't worry about it. It's great. 
God's actually trying to withhold something from you. Let me ask you this. What was at the heart of Satan's temptation? Like, what was he actually tempting them with? Yes, it, like the, the action was, go eat that fruit. But there was something going on in their heart. What was he really questioning? What was he really tempting them to walk away from, to turn from? Does it, the question make sense? What was at the heart of Satan's temptation? Okay, to be in place of God. I heard control. What else? What, what was at the heart of it? What is it? Pride. Okay, well, I mean, yeah, to even think I'm going to take God's place. <laughs> Hugely arrogant thought. Okay. Okay, his goodness. What else? Yeah. I mean, the enemy knew exactly where this would lead. I think the, the, the two things that I see, that kind of the two biggest things that were being questioned here, that Adam and Eve were being tempted to rebel against, was control and trust. Can you really trust that God is good? Kind of like Kim said, did he make this good thing and he's withholding it from you because he doesn't really want good things for you. He's trying to keep you under his thumb and can you really trust him? And then finally it came down to who's in control. He said, don't eat it. It was very clear. Don't eat that fruit. Don't even touch it or you will die. Clear as can be. And Eve looked at it and said, but I'm in control. But I see that it's pleasing and that it's even good for wisdom. I want what it offers me. And so I'm going to go my own way. I, I think that this is at the heart of every temptation since this one. It looks like all kinds of different things and it, it plays out differently. But what's at the heart is can I really trust him? And who's in control of my life? Who's really God in this situation, me or him? Adam and Eve make their choice. The next verse in, in Genesis 3, 8 then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And this whole dialogue goes on of God going, whoa, whoa, whoa how did you even know you were naked? Did, did you eat from the, the fruit of the tree? And Adam throws his wife under the bus and it's a beautiful scene. Like but you see the separation already taking place. And notice it wasn't God coming in and dropping the hammer on them. Who was the first one to break relationship? Well, Eve by eating the apple, and then both Adam and Eve, they said, let's hide from God. He's coming like he does every day. Let's hide. We actually don't want to be with God because they were ashamed. So they hid from God. They broke relationship with God. And the consequence for their sin is that God kicks them out of the garden. We can no longer live in this perfect relationship like you were created for. You can no longer experience all the blessing that I have created for you because you've chose to rebel against me. Here's the principle. Our sins separate us from our God. Isaiah 59.2 says that our sins build a wall between us and God. In fact, he has to turn his face from us because of our sin. Sin has always been meant to do only one thing, separate us from God. 
the story of the rest of the Old Testament is proving this point. Sins can't be removed by good deeds. There was nothing in all of creation that we could do to wash ourselves clean of sin. In fact, what we found is the harder we tried, the more sin we ended up falling into. The more sin was actually revealed in us. God even created the law, which was this step-by-step, do this to be clean. If you sin in this way, do this, and and I'll make you clean. And we couldn't even follow those steps. It just kept proving again and again and again that we were stained by sin. We were trying and failing to earn our way back to God. This went on for thousands of years. You see, the hopelessness of these statements, the very thing we were created for, we forfeited and were never able to get back again. This is the situation of mankind when the first Christmas comes. It's a hopeless situation. It's a dark situation. It's trying to push this boulder uphill that just keeps rolling back down over top of you again. We were hopeless. But enter Christmas. God was so moved by compassion that he had to enter the story personally. He was so moved by love that he couldn't just watch us floundering anymore. He couldn't stand to watch us suffer under the weight of our sin, separated and distant from him. And so he came in the flesh to do something for us that we have never been able to do for ourselves. We looked at this passage last week, John 1.14, the word that is Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. God said, I can't stand to watch you out there just suffering and working so hard and getting nowhere. I have to come to you. And so he left heaven behind and he put on flesh to come and dwell among us, to bring salvation to us. John says this a few verses earlier. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. The true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was bringing hope at a time of hopelessness. There was, I mean, not only the corruption and all of this, but in the heart of every person they knew, I don't deserve to be with him. And yet he came to us. Light came to the darkness. Paying the price for our sins, Jesus died and rose again. Listen, here's the truth of the Christmas story. It's a story about a baby that was born to die. And that sounds brutal. And in fact, it is brutal. But that was his plan from the very beginning. When Jesus came as a helpless babe born in a barn in Bethlehem, His plan was one day I will die for these people. But not only die for their sins, I will raise to life again to overcome their sins. Romans 5.8 says it like this, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in the midst of that hopeless, sin-stained world, Christ came and died for us. He came as a babe for the the sole purpose of paying the price for our sins, to wash us clean, the thing we could never do for ourselves. 
Everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. John 3, 16 and 17, one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God loved the world so much that he sent his son so that when we believe in him, we are moved from death to life. We are moved from hopelessness to hope. The kingdom of darkness transferred into the kingdom of light through belief in Jesus. Back to that trust and control part. Belief in Jesus looks like this. I believe that I can't save myself. I can't do it. I just keep choosing sin. I just keep stiff-arming you. I trust what Jesus has done for me, and I give him control. I follow after him. He is my, we use words like Lord. He is my king. I trust him, and I give him control of my life. For everyone that does this, we have been given everlasting life. Ephesians, Paul says it like this, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not from works so that no one can boast. We had proven for thousands of years we were unable to do it ourselves. And so Jesus came to give us a gift, something we never could have earned, but he paid the price for and life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. This is the, the beauty of Christmas. Christmas is the beginning of that story. God was writing a new story. Him, we talked about this last week. Him moving closer to us. Him always moving toward us. Not just one day when you die, but right now, today, we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Because he came in the flesh on that day as a babe, now, 2,000 years later, he continues to be with us. And in fact, again, like we discussed last week, in us. Do you guys see what I spelled up there? The youth students know it. This is the gospel. This is what we really celebrate at Christmas time. I keep saying it. It's not just a sentimental story about a baby in a manger. What we celebrate is the story of the gospel. We were helpless to save ourselves. We had broken things so badly we could never fix it. But God entered into the story, Emmanuel, God with us, and he has continued to walk with us ever since. This is what we celebrate today. This is even why we give gifts to each other. It's a weird thing, I get it. But it's a way of celebrating, like what a joyful time I can't help but showing you how happy I am. This is where it came from, not like to sell toys and make money and whatever, but like the Christian world going, I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude, I have to give somebody something. He has given me everything. How can I turn and bless other people? And this is why we give gifts. This is why we celebrate today. This is why we gather as families and, and eat good food together, is it's a celebration that we're no longer stuck in our sins. God has come to be with us and is with us still. Now let's have a Merry Christmas. This is my prayer for all of us as we leave here today is that we go with this in mind. The reason that we can say to anyone, Merry Christmas, 
is because God refused to leave us in our sin. He came to be with us and remains with us to this very day. Now let's celebrate. We celebrate a baby that was born to die so that we could have the relationship with our Heavenly Father that we were meant to in the very beginning. The relationship that we forfeited and he would not leave it alone. So he came to us and is with us today. I'm going to ask the music team to come. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, gospel means good news. And the story of Christmas is good news. I think like you would say it in Genesis 1, it is good, good news. That the king would come to us to offer us a gift that we could never hope to earn. And Lord, now we get to turn and to celebrate it together. That we get to celebrate it in front of those that don't even know that truth yet. That we get to lock arms with other believers and go, isn't he so good? May we continue to remind one another. May we continue to find those times to not get just caught up in the traditions and the family and all of the stuff, which is good stuff. But may we not lose sight of what we're truly celebrating today. The king has come to earth to bring to us what we could never earn. Lord, we are so grateful. We praise you. We lift up your name. May we know you well today and may we make you known to those who haven't found you. Be glorified in us as we celebrate Christmas, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.